going to preach from here to keep it a little looser and less formal this morning. This is the sermon I was going to preach next week. This is the Common Lectionary's Gospel lesson for today, Luke 5, verses 1 through 11, the call of the disciples. Joe Forrest was supposed to preach a sermon on miracles this morning, as you heard from the rest of the liturgy, but she was ill this weekend, so she'll preach that sermon next week, and I'll rush this sermon forward a little bit. It takes at least a week to write a sermon, sometimes a month, sometimes six months. I've been working on one sermon for five years. When, when, when we get an idea, we open a file, either paper or digital, and start throwing stuff in there until it's ready. So this sermon is supposed to be next week's sermon. It was born prematurely. This sermon is a preemie. I don't know why that's on a bias like that, but maybe we'll make that work. Once while Jesus was standing beside the Sea of Galilee and the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he saw two boats there at the shore of the lake. The fishermen had gone out in them and were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out to sea a little ways. And then Jesus sat down and taught the crowds from the boat. When Jesus had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we have worked all night long but have caught nothing, yet if you say so, I will let down my nets. When they'd done this, they caught so many fish that their nets were beginning to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down to Jesus' knees, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For Peter and all who were with him were amazed at the catch of fish that they'd taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. Then Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on I will make you fishers of people. And when they brought their boats to shore, they left everything to follow Jesus. Pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So, you notice that this is a story about a long night of futility followed by a calling to a new adventure. Most of us have known at least a few long nights of futility in our lives, and so when we see somebody who sails from success to unbroken success, we pay attention. Until a few days ago, no inductee to the Baseball Hall of Fame has ever been voted in unanimously. Not Cal Ripken, not Willie Mays, not Ted Williams, not Joe DiMaggio, not Babe Ruth, not Ty Cobb. The one that came the closest in recent years was Ken Griffey Jr. Griffey Jr. earned 99.3% of the baseball writer's vote until Mariano Rivera, unanimous pick to the hall a couple of weeks ago. This is the nightmare on Elm Street for opposing batters. Mariano Rivera coming in to the mound from the bullpen in center field to pitch the ninth inning. He retired five years ago at the age of 43 after 19 years with the Yankees, all of them with one team at one position throwing mostly just one pitch, his famous unhittable cutter, one inning at a time. He's from a tiny fishing village in Panama. When he was a kid, 
he carved his bats out of tree branches and had a facsimile of a baseball which was a fishing net wrapped in tape. His first baseball glove was a milk carton because it had to fit in your back pocket, he says. When you ask him to explain his singular success, Mariano Rivera just says, Jesus. He gives all the credit to God. The only reason I can do what I do and be what I am is because of the providence of God. King David is Mariano Rivera's hero because David was humble. And David knew that it was only God who gave him that strong right arm that was able to hurl a projectile at a burly opponent holding a club and emerge victorious. Today, Mariano Rivera has a fancier glove, but it still has the same Bible verse carved on it. Philippians 4, verse 13, I can do all things that strengthen me through Christ who strengthens me. This is him on his farewell tour. Derek Jeter famously said, more men have walked on the moon than have gotten a hit off Mariano Rivera in the postseason. It's true. Twelve men have walked on the moon and eleven have gotten a hit off Mariano Rivera in the postseason. Crane Kenny, our baseball guy, our Cubs guy, remember this congregation was here at the nine o'clock service, and he told me between services that Rivera had actually started his career as a Yankee as a starting pitcher, pitched 10 games, 50 innings as a starting pitcher. His earned run average was 5.94. If you're baseball fans, you know you don't become a starting pitcher for the Yankees with that kind of earned run average. He was washed out. He was a failure as a starting pitcher. And so here's the story of this long night of futility. One time, for reasons I can't get into this morning, Jesus is sailing on the Sea of Galilee with a stranger. The stranger's name is Simon, better known as Peter, and Peter is a fisherman, and he's been fishing all night, and he can't catch anything. Jesus tells him, throw your nets onto the other side, and Peter's skeptical. He doesn't know why this guy should know where the fish are, but he gives it a whirl, puts his nets down on the other side, and there is this extravagant haul that George Clooney sailed all over the Atlantic looking for into the teeth of the perfect storm. Now, what must have gone through Simon Peter's mind when this strange series of events unfolded? His livelihood depends on finding the fish. Most nights, he did. He reads the winds, the water temperature, the air temperature. He has his secret fishing holes. holes. He becomes one with the elements. But this particular night, he simply can't catch anything. And then this preacher man tells him how to practice his craft. How would you react to this? This landlubber, this guy from Nazareth, which is 16.4 miles from the Sea of Galilee and 22.2 from the Mediterranean Sea. He apprenticed as a carpenter in his youth, but then gave that up to study theology. What does he know about fishing? And when they finally haul their extravagant catch to shore, Jesus tells them to leave it behind. Leave the catch behind, the nets behind, the boats behind, because I'm going to make you fishers of people. And then off they go to adventures unknown and parts unexplored. 
And maybe one way that this might be God's word for us today is that Jesus comes to Simon Peter at the end of a long night of futility to give him a new calling, a new endeavor, a new adventure. Peter's just come to the end of his limits on his own achievement. He stretched them to the breaking point and he can't get any further on his own. And then Jesus steps into his life. And maybe there are people here this morning who, like me, have known long nights of futility. Maybe weeks of futility, months of futility, years of futility, when you've tried everything and worked hard and it's just not working out. And so maybe there's somebody here who, like me, sometimes seems like I'm trying to perform surgery in mittens or swimming the English Channel in a snowmobile suit or running a hundred-yard dash in snowshoes or that I studied for an exam, but it's not the exam the teacher hands out. I was studying Frost. She wants to know about Melville. That you're playing a 550-yard par 5 with nothing but a pitching wedge in your bag. That for years you dreamed of teaching kindergarten at a place like Joseph Sears, but you find yourself teaching 7th grade on the south side. You know, go ahead, make up your own metaphor. Maybe you've known a long night of futility. And that's a difficult moment, but there he comes. There's this shadowy figure standing on the shore saying, follow me, your nets will burst. I have a friend who says, a minister friend, who says that his call to the ministry was a course in statistics. I got a C, he says. So he realized that he's never going to be a star actuary or CPA or investment banker, so now he makes his living with words. When he graduated from seminary, he enlisted in the Navy and became a chaplain and saw hard combat in Vietnam and preached the word and celebrated the sacraments and gave last rites to many American soldiers. And then he served the parish next to mine in one of the churches where I served, brilliant preacher. He made his living with words. My call to the ministry was a course in statistics. I got a C. Does anybody listen to the Moth podcast? Tara Dixon told this story there not long ago. Tara Dixon was trained at Johns Hopkins and the University of California as a trauma surgeon. When she graduated from medical school, she enlisted in the army and became a major and went to Iraq to fix broken United States soldiers. And in this podcast, she is remembering the grueling days of her residency. She remembers working 134 hours a week. This was before the days when they limited residence hours to 80 hours a week. They would work 36-hour shifts have a few hours off, then 36 hours again, 134 hours a week. She points out that there are only 168 hours in the week, total. She remembers one stretch where she worked 96 straight days without a day off. And then when, one night when Dr. Dixon is the chief resident in the trauma unit in a small town southern hospital, this young woman comes in through the emergency room. It was her 16th birthday. She'd taken her car out for a spin for the first time by herself and missed a curve and flew down a hill, no seatbelt. She was ejected and the car landed on top of her. And so when she arrived at the hospital, the staff doesn't know who she is. They begin calling her patient Doe. And patient Doe has five separate 
life-threatening injuries. She has a head trauma. She has uh, bilateral lung contusions, grade four liver fracture, grade five spleen injury, grade five pelvic fracture. Dr. Dixon says any one of these injuries could have killed her. She had five. This was a broken girl, she said. And when the girl's family arrive in the waiting room at the hospital, Dr. Dixon steps away from the patient and tries to deliver the grievous news to this family. Uh, she says any one of these injuries can kill her, and there are five working together to try to kill her as we speak. But then Dr. Dixon tries to give the family as much hope as possible. She says, well, she's 16, she's healthy. If anybody can beat these injuries, it's this person, this patient Doe. And the family is just weeping and wailing and sobbing, as you might imagine. And Dr. Dixon turns to leave the family in the waiting room to return to the patient. And she puts her hand on the door, and then instantly the, the sobbing stops, just like that. The sobbing stops. And Dr. Dixon turns around, and the mother says, she's going to be okay. And Dr. Dixon says, what did you say? She's going to be okay. Dr. Dixon says, how do you know this? Her name is Savannah. Your patient Doe is Savannah. And then Dr. Dixon remembers that that particular night on this shift, she's wearing her scrub pants from her internship. And she trained in Savannah, Georgia. And so there's Savannah plastered all over her backside. And she says that was all the encouragement they needed. And Dr. Dixon says, hey, if my backside gives people hope, I'm all in. <laughs> she didn't say backside. but. <laughs> and for the next two months, Dr. Dixon works day and night trying to keep this young woman alive. She's unconscious the whole time. Lots of tubes and wires going into and out of her body, tracheotomy, the whole bit. And the whole time, Dr. Dixon is talking to Savannah. Savannah, this is going to hurt but I'll do my best to minimize the pain. You go, girl. Stay with it, kid. Two months, over and over and over. Savannah, this is going to hurt, but I'll do my best. So after two months of this, it's time for Dr. Dixon to move on to another rotation in a different unit at another hospital, and Dr. Dixon loses track of Savannah. She doesn't know what happened to her. And about a year later, Dr. Dixon is at the same hospital, and she's standing at the nurse's station talking to a nurse, and this young woman comes up and says, hey. And Dr. Dixon says, hey, do I know you? And the young woman says, it's me, Savannah. And Dr. Dixon says, I was so delighted to see that she was doing so well. She looked healthy. She was 17 years old. She was one class away from graduating with her high school classmates. But then Dr. Dixon stops and says, wait a minute. You've never met me. You were unconscious the whole time we were together. How do you know who I am? And she said, I recognized your voice. You were the one who was talking to me the whole time. And then Dr. Dixon says, so all those times, Savannah, this is going to hurt, but I'll do my best. She heard me, and she remembered me, and she believed me. And so I knew for the first time that treating people like human beings, it does make a difference. It does matter. 
And that was the first time I realized that all that sacrifice, all those blood, sweat, and tears was worth it. Hey, I'm Savannah. Now, most of us can't patch broken people back together again, and most of us will never have that definitive moment when we learn for the first time what we were born to do, when we hear the voice of God. Hey, I'm Savannah. I've never had that happen to me, have you? I did get a C in statistics, but... Sometimes we fish all night long and come up with nothing. Sometimes after a long night of futility or a long week, or a long year, or many years, we have nothing to show for it but our empty nets. But then, <laughs> we stand up on our little boats, and we look at the shoreline in the dark hours before dawn, and we see this shadowy figure on the beach, and he's beckoning us over, and he's saying, follow me, and your nets will burst. Hey, I'm Savannah. Whose voice do you hear? Whose lead do you follow?